0: Welcome to Doorknob Comments. I'm Dr. Farah White. And I'm Dr. Grant Brenner. Thank you for joining us on Doorknob Comments, a podcast that we created to discuss all things involving mental health. We take the view that psychiatry is not just about the absence of illness, but rather the positive qualities, presence of health, and strong relationships, and all the wonderful things that make life worth living. The show is named for a phenomenon that sometimes happens at the end of a therapy session, when the patient may mention something important or something they're conflicted about right as they're walking out the door. Sometimes they may have been quietly thinking about it the whole session without saying anything at all. Equal parts frustrating and intriguing, it leaves the therapist holding the emotional bag. This is Para White here with a very dear friend um, and interesting person,
1: Jacob Appel. <laughs> so I can tell you a little bit about me. Um, I right now am a psychiatrist and a bioethicist at Mount Sinai. But for years before that, I taught bioethics at Brown, um, and people ask how you become a bioethicist, mm-hmm. which has always been a puzzle to me and sort of still is, but I, I was trained first as a lawyer and then as a physician, although to my mother, I am still her son who's not the rabbi. Okay. Um, and yeah, and I'm here mostly to talk about my new ethics book that is forthcoming in October.
0: I am so excited to hear all about this because I know that it's something um, that you've been working on for a long time. Tell me a little bit about how it came to fruition. And...
1: Sure. So th- there's both the practical side of it and the philosophical side. So for a long time, I knew I wanted to write an ethics book and I sort of wanted to write scenarios that are drawn from both my own experience but also from interesting bioethical dilemmas in the news. Um, from celebrity experiences, from history, but not ones that are marketed for a field of experts, but for ordinary people, Mm -hmm. sort of be able to sit around the dinner table and discuss, this is what I would do. Honey, what would you do? Are we really compatible? Um, (laughs) though, I mean, if you can't agree on DNA testing, you really shouldn't be a couple. Okay. So, noted. (laughs) So that, that is the half of it. And the other half then is, so I put these together. And then even though I have a wonderful agent and I've sold a number of books before, this will actually be my 15th book, yeah. selling an ethics book for lay people turned out to be very difficult. Uh, many people said one variation or another of, we really like the concept, but there's no shelf in the bookstore that they put ethics <laughs> books on. Our marketing team has no way to market this. Um One editor who I will not name, either the editor or the publisher, said to me, you know, We really don't see a market for this because it doesn't tie into anything we currently do. Mm -hmm. Um, However, we do have a line of vampire books. (laughs) Do you think you could write something on ethics and vampires? (laughs) That might be the sequel.
0: Okay. (laughs) And what do you think changed or was it a matter of finding the right people or?
1: I think I got really (laughs) lucky. So so it's coming out with Algonquin, which is actually now a subsidiary of Workman. Um, and I found an editor who was particularly interested in these sorts of questions. Um, and I think she took this home with her partner, and mm-hmm. they discussed the issues. And she realized what my friends have realized for a long time that, like, I hand out copies of this manuscript, and people say, "I got into a fight with my wife about <laughs> this." That's a good sign.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that it's probably something that brings up, you know, a lot, and in in terms of just compatibility, like you said, um, and then also the emotional reaction probably around medical issues. Um, Is there one, I don't know, part of the book or is there something that you'd like to talk about that you think will be either –
1: Sure. Well, I can give you a sense of the kinds of issues that come up in the book. great. And I will mention that it's interesting you say that like sort of an emotional reaction and Mm -hmm. possibly a rational reaction. Yeah. Because we all tend to think of bioethics as a very rational field, Mm -hmm. and we're driven by John Locke and John Stuart Mill. Mm -hmm. But for those of you who follow philosophy, there's also a bit of Hume in all of us, and we have our visceral instincts. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges is meshing what you philosophically believe to be right with how Mm -hmm. you viscerally feel. Right. And often people will read one of these scenarios, and they will think, you know, this is the obvious answer. And then when you ask them to explain why that's the obvious answer, they struggle a great deal to come up with an explanation. So the kinds of issues that I look at in the book, I'll take one example that initially was a case that uh, Baron Lerner, the um, NYU ethicist, um, had written about in the New York Times now about 16 years ago. It's about a man who needs a kidney transplant and his sons come to be tested to see if they're a match. And it turns out that they're not a match and one of them is not his son. Hmm. And then you have this difficult dilemma. Do you tell the father this? Do you tell the son this? Who's really the patient in this circumstance? Right. And people initially sort of react, well, why would you tell them? Why would you interfere with their lives? Mm-hmm. But then you realize there are all sorts of medical implications. What if the son thinks he comes from a long line of Norwegians? So when they offer him a test for diseases that are frequent among Ashkenazi Jews, he says, we're, we're Vikings. We don't get tay <laughs> Um And then he has a baby with Tay-Sachs. Yep. Or you show up in the ER because you're suicidal and they ask, have any of your relatives committed suicide? And you say, of course not. Mm-hmm. Or you show up with a uh, uh, abdominal issue and yeah. they decide not to screen you for early onset colon cancer. So your medical history matters. Yeah. And then there's the opposite case, which people pay less attention to, um, which actually troubles people more. What if you show up with somebody who you don't believe is a relative? Mm-hmm. Let's say you show up with your spouse. And the DNA testing shows that you're actually siblings or half-siblings. The stakes of revealing that that to you are actually much, much higher in many regards. Yeah. What do you do with that?
0: Right. And does the book offer kind of – like how do you sort of look at things and break it down for the reader?
1: So the book offers explanations of sort Mm -hmm. of how you would go through different approaches and what outcomes you would get if you walked down different paths. Yeah. Never in the book do I say, this is the right answer, okay. this is the wrong answer. Okay. Because they're all designed to be questions for which there is no clear right answer, wrong right. answer. But like one example I offer in, in that scenario mm-hmm. of a potential answer is, which some hospitals now do, though mm-hmm. most transplants don't, trope mm-hmm. programs don't, is to have them tell people in advance, if we discover that you're not genetically related, or alternatively, if we discover that you are unexpectedly genetically related,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we're not going to tell you. That's not part of our protocol. You should assume nothing. If they I don't see. tell you that, you're probably going to assume that whatever you assume beforehand is true and has been validated. <laughs> okay. On the other hand, when they tell you in advance, if we discover that your wife is really your sister, we're not going to tell you. How many people really register that? Most people probably tune it out as boilerplate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But I guess with, you know, how easy it is to get DNA testing these days, um, do you find that People are more curious, and do you think that maybe that's why it's become so common?
1: Well, I think there's a whole set of questions related to genetic testing. This is just one of many. The yeah. addresses that are floating around in society, right. um, where the technology is often advancing far faster than people realize.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, people think, for example, that their genetic information, if they send it away to 23andMe, is protected. You can't discriminate against people based on their genes. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, as a practical matter, that's not true. The Genetic Um Information Non-Discrimination Act applies to very discrete areas like employment and health insurance, and not things like long-term care insurance or a whole host of other areas where some insurance company can say we want to see your results work. Did you get tested? But there are also the personal implications that people haven't really thought about. Uh-huh. You could say that if you load your DNA up to one of these sites like Family Tree DNA uh-huh. and then they're searching for the Golden State Killer. Right. They can use this information. More importantly, and this is what people have were lost sight of, is even if you don't upload your information, at least for Caucasian Americans, people of European descent, enough people have already loaded their information up that somebody pretty determined can more or less map out your DNA backwards. Really? So we've reached that point where you really don't have the genetic privacy you think you have.
0: Wow. Yeah. And so are there any – you know, people in place kind of fighting against this, or is are things just going in this direction, and we have to?
1: I mean, things are going in this direction, and we need to learn how to adopt and build safeguards. How mm-hmm. adapt because we're not going to stop this sort of progress.
2: Okay.
1: Um, what I tell people is, you can make a rule here that won't let people do it, but people will either do it on the black market, mm-hmm. or they'll do it in Thailand or Mexico or someplace else, yeah. and it's all a race to the moral bottom or, mm-hmm. or the moral top, depending on your viewpoint.
0: Right, and. In the book, do you talk about your own viewpoint?
1: Um, Rarely. Occasionally, I'll talk about my own experiences, which is very different. Okay. I I will add, I have a book of essays called Phoning Home, Mm -hmm. where I do talk about a lot of my own viewpoints and my own experiences. Mm -hmm. Less so in the ethics book. So I do offer an example I offer from my own life is I've had testing done for the APOE allele, um, Mm -hmm. which is basically a measure of half of your known likelihood of getting Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. It's still a low percentage of your overall predictive value, yeah. but it has some predictive value.
2: Okay.
1: Now, the ethical dilemma here is in having this testing done, you not only discover part of your own risk, but you also discover part of your parents' mm-hmm. risk. And then the question arises, who do you tell? What if your parents don't want to know? Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually asked by a journal to publish an article about this. Fortunately, my parents don't read very much what I write, <laughs> but if they did, they could have discovered their risk for Alzheimer's disease, which I will share with your public is actually at baseline, it's oh. not at elevated risk. Okay. But had sure. they been at elevated risk, it would have been a
0: problem. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and have they discussed wanting to know or not know? Or
1: it is very clear to me they would not want to know. Yeah. Um, there is actually there are several groups of people, small insular communities that mm-hmm. are prone to particularly rare genetic disorders. Mm-hmm. Um which at various times have tried to lobby either to get industry or even the government to prohibit people from developing specific tests for their allele because they're afraid that a rogue member of the community will unmask others.
0: Wow. Yeah. And then what implications?
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and well, we could ask ourselves, does it make sense to prohibit genetic discrimination? Maybe genetic material is actually somewhat predictive. Someone who's going to go blind in five years is probably not someone you want to train to drive the bus. Um, We use all sorts of other predictive mechanisms that are probably less effective. Mm -hmm. Why should we look at your SAT scores and not your genetic IQ? Um, One is actually a measure of your innate abilities or intelligence. Mm -hmm. The other is a measure of your parents' SAT scores. Right. Um, And yet we don't find the latter objectionable and are very concerned about the former. Yeah. So I, I don't necessarily say we shouldn't have rules against discrimination. We want to think about why we're discriminating. Mm-hmm. And, and so to quote Robert Frost, we want to think about who we're walling in and who we're walling out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So I can offer another, another completely different tactic, another kind of question sure. that is less personal and more systematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is based on a real case that occurred a number of years ago. And I won't well, we'll mention which hospital, but a major mm-hmm. hospital okay. in the United States. Patient walked into the emergency room, with a bullet wound in his stomach, mm-hmm. and he said, please treat me. I don't want to die. And he said this very lucidly, but I don't want to be treated by a black or a Jewish doctor. I would rather die than be treated by either one. And then shortly thereafter, he passed out cold. How should the hospital handle that situation? Mm-hmm. And you can ask yourself, like, there are three options. It should be clear, is a basic teaching tool, there are three options, okay. not two. Okay. You can not treat him and let him die. Mm-hmm. You can treat him with whatever doctor you have available, Or you can treat him with the doctor he asked for making accommodations that obviously have significant morale implications for the staff. And Mm -hmm. in some communities, if enough people make the same request, we'll probably have delirious implications, deleterious implications both Mm -hmm. for the profession and for whatever groups are Mm
2: -hmm.
1: not preferred. Um, Most people view that as an unreasonable request. However, there's a continuum of requests that some people find very reasonable and others not. If you are an African-American psychiatric patient Mm -hmm. and you come to a clinic and you say, I want a black doctor because a Mm -hmm. white person can't understand what I've been through, Mm -hmm. some people find that a very reasonable accommodation. Others don't. You are a young woman from a foreign culture and you say you want a female obstetrician to deliver your baby. You are an elderly man and you say you want a male urologist to do your surgery. Mm -hmm. But then the question arises – why do you want a malurologist? Mm-hmm. And you might say, because I only feel comfortable with men touching certain parts of my body, Or you might say, you know, everybody knows men cut straighter, okay. which is obviously not true. But do you want to get involved in the business of figuring <laughs> – uh, I, I, I'm not a surgeon, but my guess is that uh,
0: – Neither am I. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> um,
1: but that being said, I mean, see, wh- to what degree do hospitals want to get into figuring out what people's motives are?
0: Right.
1: And then there's also the additional question of structural barriers and, and the practical implications. Mm-hmm. So you show up in the ER with a bullet wound. We can have a lot of options available to us. You you tell me, Um, you know, Doc, I find this hard to say, but my father, who's now 92 years old, he's really prejudiced. Mm-hmm. If you don't send him a white home health aide, he's just going to find fault with whoever you send him and send them back. Mm-hmm. How many home health aides do we send the guy before we accommodate his daughter's vicarious right. preference – Um, knowing that otherwise we're just inconveniencing everybody and we're not really changing the world.
0: Right. Right. So, what ended up happening (laughs) to the guy with the gunshot wound?
1: I I will confess, I actually don't know the answer to that. (laughs) Um, I, I learned this from my colleague, um, advisor who taught at Brown for many years. Um, and he never, I believe by a conscious choice, never told me the outcome. So.
0: What, what would we imagine? The
1: outcome to be um i think in that case usually yeah. at least historically they would have treated they would yeah. have over- overruled but you can picture more concrete scenarios where the guy mm-hmm. just doesn't come in and say that where you can sort of excuse your treatment as saying it's an emergency maybe he's in shock right guy comes in with written documentation saying he's a lifelong klansman or some other yeah. disturbing background and then he sort of made a case in the same way yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses may have documentation with them that says, I don't want a blood transfusion. Right. Which is very different from you showing up in the hospital and saying, I don't believe antibiotics work.
0: Right. Right. And then also I think one of the big questions is how much do we have to know about how hospitals work um, and how much do hospitals have to really be upfront about, you know, the inner workings and –
1: no, absolutely. It's we are. We forget that even though we say that the doctor should do no harm and put his mm-hmm. patient first or her patient first, that's always in relation to the other patients. Right. If my mother shows up in the hospital, she only cares about my mother. My mother's a lovely person, yeah. but but if she has a hangnail <laughs> and okay. it costs everybody else in the hospital uh, on right. ventilators their life support to yeah. get her hangnail fixed, she wants her hangnail fixed. And more importantly, as her son, I want her hangnail right. fixed. Um, if we hired the doctor to follow you around all day mm-hmm. long, um, your outcomes would probably be better. Right. Former presidents live a very long time. Yeah. Um, but the doctors, unlike the patients, are systematic players. They're mm-hmm. repeat players. They're okay. not one-time players. Right. And their values and goals are, are fundamentally different. Yeah. If you have an, an- infection, we could bring out our highest-powered antibiotic and treat mm-hmm. you with it immediately and cure you. But the efficacy of that an antibiotic would rapidly fade. And yeah. then when someone else has a more severe infection, we wouldn't be able to help them. Right. So we take that risk that maybe this antibiotic that we're using that is less effective won't cure you, mm-hmm. and a few people die for the greater good of patients overall. Right. So I think uh, understanding that alone helps you figure out how how hospitals work. Yeah. Um, is valuable as a patient, but it also helps you think about the practical choices involved. Right.
0: And, I mean, most hospitals do have ethics committees. Have you been a part of that? And what kinds of, you know, that, that seems like that's where things happen real time, where decisions are made. Cause I know just from my time in the hospital mm-hmm. that when there was an ethical question, it was sort of bounced up.
1: Um, yeah. So I think there's a wide variation. Um, the most clear bifurcation is between Healthcare ethics in patient care and mm-hmm. healthcare ethics in research, mm-hmm. and a lot of what I do now at Sinai's, I'm on the IRB or the Institutional mm-hmm. Review Board, and we review the ethics of research protocols, okay. which are, which are somewhat complicated. Yeah. Um, there's also an ethics committee, and in many hospitals there is an ethics consult service that mm-hmm. shows up at the bedside. And I've been involved in that in the past in other hospitals okay. where you show up at the bedside and you actually do a evaluation the same mm-hmm. way a cardiologist might um, or a nephrologist might, and mm-hmm. offer recommendations. Okay. Um, but as a psychiatrist, you also do a lot of ethics work on the side as well, and mm-hmm. people come to you with questions. And I can't the people know me, so they know they can curbside yeah. me with questions all the time, and yeah. I offer my limited wisdom.
0: And are there ever things, you know, because I I know that you have, have an interest and like pretty fair expertise in the history of psychiatry and i'm wondering because I, I remember listening to your lecture mm-hmm. was a few years ago but really stood out to me um sort of how psychiatry has changed and really how it's rooted in some things that are probably pretty murky
1: yeah i mean i mean the key thing to remember is that through most of medicine we've known less than we haven't known mm-hmm. And we still know far less than we don't know. Yeah. We just don't know which part of what we know is true and which part of what we know is false. Right. And medicine, even the best intentioned physicians who thought they knew an awful lot, right. often turned out to be wrong. Yes. So one classic example I use is from about 1920 to 1960, um, the standard of care for a heart attack, for a myocardial infarction, um, post-care follow-up was up to six months of bed rest. However, there was another cardiologist in New York City, this pioneer named John Davin, mm-hmm. trained at Hopkins, um, set up a practice on the Upper West Side, the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And he decided bed rest wasn't the way to go. Beer was the way to go. <laughs> and he started prescribing during Prohibition. He wrote okay. more beer prescriptions than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and the amazing thing is who did better, the patients on bed rest or the patients on beer? Yeah. By far, the patients on beer. Yeah. And the medical students all think about this for a while and say, we didn't learn anything about beer curing heart disease, and it doesn't. I mean, right. don't if you had an MI, don't go home and drink <laughs> beer. It, w- it won't hurt you any, but it won't help you right. either. But bed rest, for that yeah. anticoagulation, mm-hmm. kills you. Yeah. And I mean, the whole host of thousands and thousands of people, right. um, Clark Gable, John Steinbeck, people would have one cardiac event, oh and then they would be put in bed, and they would have a second cardiac event. Probably one of the causes of Woodrow Wilson's excessive strokes at the turn of the century. Um, gosh. So... And that's just one of, of many different examples. Um, they took out healthy adult thymuses because mm-hmm. they thought that these were only supposed to be present in children. Um, they treated all these arrhythmias that were utterly benign in the seventies with antiarrhythmic drugs that were dangerous. Yeah. Um, so we're, I'm sure we're doing the same thing now. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to mention there are also bad actors who can dominate an entire field. There's all right. of Bettelheim's work on autism and refrigerator mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the man was clearly a sociopath and all of his work was nonsense, yeah. but he transformed for the neg- negative the lives of tens of thousands of children for 30 years. Wow. Yeah. So it should give us all pause. Yeah. I mean, psychiatry in 1940 was frontal lobotomies mm-hmm. and insulin comas and ice baths for bipolar disorder. And surgery there Varanoff and animal testicles under the forearms to get mm. testosterone levels up. I mean, the only thing they did that actually worked was shock therapy. Yeah. But they didn't use the appropriate muscle relaxants right. and people broke their long bones. Wow.
0: Yeah. Seems
1: pretty grim. And you wonder why people don't want to go to psychiatrists. <laughs> you, you wonder why I didn't want to become a psychiatrist. Right.
0: <laughs> but, you know, now just to bring it. You know, into the present with the field changing so much and things like ketamine and TMS and microdosing, um, ayahuasca. Really, I get asked these questions all the time, um, about whether they work. And part of me maybe is just not that interested in research, but also I feel like the answer is that we really don't know that much um about these things.
1: No, I, I think that's the both the honest answer and the best answer to give a patient. Yeah. Um but it, again risks this complex ethical challenge. Because on the one hand you can provide the patients with the data. You can mm-hmm. give them links to STAR-D and the Katie study. Right. At the end of the day, most patients don't want a lot of information. They turn to you and they say some version implicitly or explicitly of Doctor, if this were your sister, what would yeah. you recommend? Right. So Lots of evidence shows that people tune out all the risks meaningfully, and how you shape the explanation is what determines their outcome. Okay. If you doubt me, because some of you in the audience may <laughs> think that you're really autonomous figures, um, here's what I suggest doing. Next time you go to the dentist and you have a root canal done, uh, or a, a, a wisdom tooth <laughs> taken out is better, a okay. wisdom tooth taken out, okay. um, read carefully the boilerplate and description, and usually one we'll of the descriptions of things that can happen when your wisdom teeth are taken out, or you can die right there in the dentist's office. And death is listed as a complication. Mm-hmm. And you sign the form and have it done anyway. Okay. But if your dentist sat down next to you and said, I want you to know there are risks in this procedure. You could have some pain, some mm-hmm. bleeding, or you could die right here in my office <laughs> shortly after we speak and said it in that tone, people okay. wouldn't agree to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They probably wouldn't. And the, But it's actually – did you see the, the Times article about Stephen Johnson syndrome? It came out think over the weekend i didn't but. um and i don't know whether the patient was taking lamictal but i'll i'll send you the article it was interesting about um a woman who uh, the doctor i guess she was in her residency and she was treating the patient um who had a really really bad case of steven johnson's and um basically was kind of wondering why she was putting the patient through all of this. The patient was sedated and it was really, really awful. Um, and then she saw the patient much later on coming in and she had had a full life. Uh, but it, I guess there was this question um, that came up during uh, Vietnam that there was someone who wanted to be allowed to die and, um, and people treated him anyway against his will, and he went on to become, I guess, a lawyer. This is this the Dax case? Dax Coward? It must be. Yeah. yeah.
1: Dax Coward is a remarkable figure, and anybody who's interested should really watch okay. the documentary about him.
0: Oh, I didn't it's know it's there a
1: was a – transformative okay. case. Okay. Um, he was injured in a propane explosion. His father was killed. Okay. He lost his fingers. He ended up blind, disfigured. Um, he really wanted to die. Yeah. They kept him alive through what was really torture. Eh? Like at a boil- yeah. They had like equivalent of boiling him in oil for, I think, a year. Gosh. Now, of course, he's a very successful lawyer. He's happily married. Right. His life has worked out. But he makes the point that's not the, the litmus test. Right. The litmus right. test is you can't take away the existential suffering he went through by saying now he leads a good life. Right. This has been an ethical debate in many hospitals. Mm-hmm. It was from about, for about 20 years, yeah. from the 70s to the 90s, between palliative care and psychiatry.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You would have patients who had C3, C4 spinal fractures which means they're never going to, they're on a ventilator. They're never mm-hmm. going to regain any meaningful function. Um, they wake up and they say, Doc, I don't want to live like this. I want to die. And palliative care would say we have to respect their autonomous mm-hmm. wishes. Um, they're making a request. They have capacity to do so. Psychiatry would often say, but oh, we can give them therapy. We can talk to them. We can give them yeah. medication. Give them six months. Give them a year. Maybe they'll end up like Christopher Reeve. hmm but how do you measure the potential, the possibility that they will versus the existential is anxiety and pain if they don't or while they reach that point? Yeah. I, I will add there's a way that these questions come together in mm-hmm. an interesting scenario. We talked about both informing people of risk yeah. and about systems. Mm-hmm. So you go to the doctor with a medical problem. Let's say you have a brain aneurysm that needs to be coiled or operated on. It mm-hmm. could kill you in a couple of days. could yeah. burst. And you ask them, how good are you at doing these? And they tell you at our hospital, 20% of people make a full recovery. What they don't tell you is that at the Great Mount Sinai Hospital, I'm just making up these numbers, mm-hmm. 80% of people have a full recovery. Okay. And you never think to ask. Right. Is that malpractice? Or what if you do ask and they say, we don't really look into what other doctors do, mm-hmm. um, which I don't really believe, but right. there'd be a moral hazard. People would stop looking if they had to tell you. Yeah. Um, and we generally don't hold people responsible to that standard. To okay. what degree do you have to disclose disclose elements of the system? Um, do you have to tell people, this is my third appendectomy? <laughs> do you have to tell people, I've never done one before, but I've seen it on YouTube and I'm pretty <laughs> good at it? Um, at what point are you over the threshold where there's no disclosure necessary?
0: Right. Right. And I I actually think every patient probably has the right to know Um and it came up a little bit with the article that I told you about, because I prescribe Lamictal quite frequently. Um, and, you know, people will ask how often, how, how many prescriptions do you write for this? And I'll say a lot. I can't quite count. And I've, have I ever seen this? No, but it's still something that I worry about constantly. Um, and, don't think that I would feel comfortable sitting across from a doctor who couldn't tell me, well, yeah, I've never done this before and this will be the first time because I do think that there are things that I would care about um, not that much and things that I would care about Mm. very deeply.
1: The concern in requiring these sorts of disclosures Mm -hmm. or making these sorts of disclosures available is it leads increasingly to – Augmentation of what is already a two tiered health system. Okay. You could think of the example I, I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are extraordinarily wealthy mm-hmm. and you want a white Christian surgeon, you just go door to door on Park Avenue, knocking until you find one. Right. Um, if you are indigent and don't have social capital, and you show up at the Mount Sinai Hospital, you get whoever the service attending is mm-hmm. that month, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Um, if you know to ask, whether the surgeon is going to be a first-year resident or the chief of surgery, you may get what you want, and if you don't know to ask, you may not. Right. But more importantly, sometimes even disclosing information is useless or even counterproductive in the context of who the patient is. So if you tell some of my patients who live across the street from the hospital in public housing uh-huh. that we have a 40% success rate, but if the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, they have a uh-huh. 70% success rate, that's like telling them on the moon they have a 77%. Right. What good yeah. does that do them? Right. It just reminds them that the healthcare system is inequitable.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. But Not, so no easy answer.
0: Right. But I think, you know, it's information and I wonder how, you know, I think people have a right to know certain things about.
1: Um, well, that's why I think the, the art of medicine – and it's a difficult one because it's somewhat autonomous-inducing and mm-hmm. somewhat paternalistic. Is being able to figure out what people want to know that will help them make the decision they want to make. Right. Because if you tell them everything, it's equivalent to telling them nothing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But I think that ultimately, people are putting their trust in their doctors, and you know they have, and and maybe they don't. Right. Maybe I'm someone who really shares more than I should or more than I need to. Um, but I probably wouldn't prescribe something that I wouldn't take myself. No, that's um, probably a- – Yeah.
1: Because – Assuming you have the illness in question. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I am not one of the people who subscribes to the theory that doctors should try all the medicines they no. prescribe. <laughs> I have a little bit of chemotherapy today and a little bit of shock therapy tomorrow.
0: Right. No, but, but- – you know, I know what I would want to be treated with if I had a panic attack. I know what I would want to be treated with if I became psychotic. You just go right to, to clozapine. Um, don't, don't stop it. You yeah. Know, no. Anything else along the way. Um, and so I sort of try to operate like that to, you know, to the extent that I can.
1: Which is great. And, and candidly, it's not the way most of medicine practices. Yeah. So, for example, we know it was a paper the last few years that came out that uh rates for c sections have gone mm-hmm. up substantially but doctors have lower rates than the general population
2: mm-hmm. and
1: obstetricians have lower rates for doctors so that reveals something to us about yeah. what obstetricians would want for their care and yet what care they're offering to other people
0: yeah yeah i didn't know that um but it doesn't really surprise me have you ever seen a c section pretty...
1: yeah no absolutely <laughs> But. I mean, it, it's sort of the same logic as a pilot tells me he won't fly in an airplane. I'm not flying that on that, right. ir- that airline.
2: Right.
0: Right. And, but maybe that's also what we can sort of, you know, use as a guiding, you know, force. Because um, for, obviously there are people who know the most about the risks, the complications, and the benefits of, you know, each birth option. am sure there are situations in which an OB would say, absolutely, let's go for a C-section.
1: Um. Yeah, no. I mean, I mean, the challenge is that in the old days, you knew your doctor as a human being and mm-hmm. you spent your entire life with the same doctor. And increasingly, doctors have become a service profession in a negative sense in yeah. that they offer a service the way your mechanic offers a service. Right. And so in the old days, um, if you got sick, almost uniformly, your doctor would come visit you in the hospital. Yeah. And now there's a separate team of specialists who take care of you in the hospital there's often a separate day team and a separate night team. Mm-hmm. And if you die in the hospital, sometimes a different doctor will tell your family that you died. Mm. Um, and to me, there's something unsettling about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that there's going to be any way that things, I don't know, that it goes back the other way or not really?
1: I hope it does, but I'm not sure how we shift things in the other direction. Yeah. Um, I have the commercialization of medicine, which has its upsides too, also has its downsides. Yeah. And the same with the commercialization of, The economy more generally has its upsides and its downsides. Mm -hmm. Um, You can complain that McDonald's and CVS have replaced your local pharmacy and your local dinette, Mm -hmm. which is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, when you drive through rural Georgia and you go into a McDonald's, you're sure they're going to serve you and they're going to serve you the same way they serve you in New York City. And when I was a kid driving through rural Georgia and you'd stop in a local dinette and you had your New York plates and looked like a Jew from Brooklyn, people (sighs) didn't treat you the same way. Yeah. On the whole. Yeah. Yeah. Upside and a downside. I agree.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I, will, I will offer as an aside to that. Some people show up at the hospital. Mm-hmm. My mother's a perfect example. She doesn't care how the doctor treats her. The doctor okay. can call her name. The doctor can hit her on the <laughs> head. The doctor can lock her in a closet. As long as he gets her better. Yeah. Her goal is to get better and go home. Right. My grandmother, when she was alive, on the other hand, mm-hmm. she didn't really care whether she got better or <laughs> not. That was sort of incidental. It was the experience of being treated like a patient that mattered right. to her. Um, Anatoly Breuer has a wonderful, um, article years ago, the writer, he's since passed away okay. about in the New York Times being treated. I believe it's called Doctor Talk to Me. Mm-hmm. And when she said, like, what his doctor looked like and how his doctor mm-hmm. dressed and what photos his doctor had in his office okay. were almost as important to him as anything else about the experience. Huh. So you can tell my grandmother that listening to her heart and lungs when she comes in for a twisted ankle serves no diagnostic right. purpose. But if you don't do it, she feels like she hasn't gotten her money's worth. <laughs> yeah. e- even though I should add, by the way, the taxpayer's not her paying for it. Right. But still, right. she hasn't
0: gotten her yeah. money's worth. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if that's something that is, you know, just changing over time. Do you think it's a generational thing? People seem to care Far more now – and because you can see there's like city MD on every corner – about just efficiency um, and the lack of connection doesn't seem to bother most people um, of this generation. I don't
1: – Well, I think we live in a society that is overall much less socially connected. I mm-hmm. mean, there's bowling alone. We have all this data on the decline of social capital yeah. um, and the – vast spread of social isolation and loneliness. Mm-hmm. Um, some data suggest that loneliness kills far more people than obesity or cigarettes. Right. So in that context, this is just part of a larger trend, right. but it's a deeply problematic trend.
0: Right. And I sort of wonder, does medicine have any, just because of what we're supposed to do, um, do no harm, all of that, is there any um, obligation to practice in a certain way.
1: Uh, well, I would suggest there is. One of yeah. one of the fallacies one often hears is some variation of, I went to medical school, I earned my degree, mm-hmm. I should be able to charge what I want, run my practice the way I want, etc., cetera, et cetera. Now, if you're a barber, that makes perfect sense right. to me. There can be an unlimited number of barbers. Right. The, on- the only barrier on more barbers is how much hair there is. <laughs> okay, True. On the other hand... Doctors who are highly regulated and their Mm -hmm. numbers artificially limited by the government um, are more like taxi medallions or Mm -hmm. liquor licenses in many communities or radio waves or dates with Ali McGraw. There are are a limited number of them (laughs) and they have to be parceled out in a way that everybody gets their equitable share. I have not gotten my equitable share of dates with Ali McGraw, I want to emphasize. (laughs) but Maybe she's listening. Yeah, maybe I'm dating myself here. (laughs) I'm sure she's happily married and my mother would say too old for me.
0: Um, but yeah I I tend to think that you're right um, about that and I think that that's something that maybe people before they go into a field like medicine need to consider Um,
1: and I think unfortunately the language is shifting and the language to me is very problematic I mean I went to medical school to be a doctor Mm -hmm. not to be a provider I I don't know how the patients became clients um, I, I don't know how the shoppers at the supermarket became guests. I, know. I, I am, I am not a guest of Walmart. Um, when, when Sam Walton invites me to his house yeah. and, and serves me cocktails, <laughs> then I'm a guest.
0: Okay. Yeah. But I agree with you, uh, that that is really problematic. And it's sort of like pr- provider. I hate that term. Um, I don't know what it even means. Um, what am I really providing. Um, and I don't know how much control we have over, you know, sort of words that become popularized or, you know, whether it's time to try to take control of that in a, in a certain way, because I see it everywhere. Um, and I see other doctors using those words, um,
1: and in all fairness, it's not just medicine. It's all the what used to be called learned professions, though it's not clear whether they're learned anymore. Okay. It's not clear whether they're professions anymore. <laughs> okay. I mean, the college students are now clients of the college. Really? Yeah, which is a completely different culture. Yeah. And we try to give them courses that they want right. and meet their needs and give them their tuition's worth. Yeah. Um, that's a very different understanding of the job. Whether right. it's journalism or law or diplomacy, these are now jobs, not callings.
0: Right. And what's the responsibility of the school to say, Hey, these are our, you know, we are the Institute of Higher Learning and these are our requirements. You know, I don't know. When I was in college, I had to take certain courses that were set out if I wanted to major in what I wanted to major in. Um, and it's a good (laughs) thing that I didn't get to choose my courses (laughs) because I would have chosen, you know, things like, you know, basket weaving and Norwegian folklore. Yeah. And and
1: know. if you go to some schools that remain nameless, mm-hmm. they invest their money in things like very fancy food in a cafeteria yeah. and whitewater rafting in their gym right. and things that clearly are not the mission of a college experience right. because that is what their customers want. I see. Yeah.
0: So, mm, yeah, I think they have their own ethics issues. Yeah.
1: I mean, everybody's interested in yeah. throughput and right. words that shouldn't be in the English language. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, we have a couple of minutes. Um, is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't gotten a chance to touch on? or?
1: Sure. So I'll okay. mention my, my, my other world because you yeah. always get a chance to pitch your book. Good. My yes. book, by the way, is called Who Says You're Dead? Okay.
0: Um, I love that title. <laughs> well, I, can I actually, really love it. I can tell you a
1: little bit about the ethical dilemmas behind the title because okay. that's actually a good topic. Okay. Um, so one of the most difficult questions and one we're going to see more of is different people have different different definitions of what it means to be dead. Mm-hmm. And most states have adopted brain death now, where okay. you no higher brain function. I mean, no brain function at all mm-hmm. is death. Some people who the political spectrum often describes as liberal or progressive or utilitarian think that no higher brain function should be the definition. Okay, But more concerning from an ethical point of view are people who don't accept brain death at all, who mm-hmm. only believe in cardiopulmonary death. Mm-hmm. So the Dove Brody case is a case that comes to mind, the Jesse Kuchin case. Um, where people want to take their relatives who have been declared dead home mm-hmm. on ventilators and put them in their living room and keep them, quote, unquote, alive mm-hmm. for as long as they can live. That's their religious or cultural value. Now, my grandmother dies in the hospital. I want her embalmed and put up in my yeah. living room like Lenin. We don't let you do that. Right. It's a health hazard, but yeah. it's also unseemly to many people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because death isn't just a biological phenomenon. It's a social phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um Your kids can inherit your property when you're dying. Your wife can remarry. Mm -hmm. You don't have rights in your children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So how to grapple with these cases as there are more and more of them
0: becomes challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully uh, people will (laughs) – society looks to people like you for some guidance on it. Yeah.
1: My my goal is – I have no answers to offer any of these questions. My job is to let people think about if you make this choice, these are the implications of it. Right. If you make bad choice, those are the implications right. of it. There are many positions that make perfect sense and some that are illogical internally, yeah.
0: but for if everybody makes the choice to keep their loved ones on respirators and you know, forever and ever, the implications of that, you know, do we really want to kind of live in a world mm. like that, I think is is the question. Yeah, and,
1: to what, to what degree do we let other people make choices we wouldn't agree with? Right. Especially when the cost is borne by society yeah. as a whole. Yeah. You can apply that to vaccination. You can apply mm-hmm. that to people who don't get appropriate care. You can apply that to addiction. It's a universal dilemma.
0: Mm-hmm. It is. But I think that there's probably some, you know, well, I guess there, there's no point at which everyone agrees on anything, even.
1: So. I mean, the, the the Aztecs sacrificed their enemies and yeah. the Egyptians married their sisters. To yeah. so get a universal <laughs> ethic is very challenging.
0: <laughs> and do you think it's impossible? Um,
1: the best way I put it, mm-hmm. what I taught Brown students for many years, okay. is there are two things you have to view to, to be, I think, a functional person in the world. Okay. On the one hand, you have to understand that from the right vantage point, all ideas or a very wide range of ideas can be justified. Um, a very different range of ways of living – um, have an ethical basis in them. And you should respect that. So people who start with different premises, whether mm-hmm. it's abortion or capital punishment, come to different conclusions, and they're not idiots. Mm-hmm. You might disagree with them, but there's value in their views. Okay. But you also have to have a core set of beliefs that you can justify for yourself that define the world you want to live in. Mm-hmm. And once you acknowledge that other people may be well-intentioned, you mm-hmm. still want to advocate for the views of the world you want to embrace.
0: I think that is such an important message, especially you know, right at this moment for, for people to hear. So I hope that it gets through and thank you so much for being here and for talking with me.
1: Thank you for having me. And you doubled my audience (laughs) single-handedly.
0: Well, good luck with everything. And we can't wait to hear how it turns out. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Thank you for listening to doorknob comments. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any type of medicine. It's not a substitute for professional and individualized treatment services, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment. Thanks.